scripture reading comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Man, that prayer got me pumped. I'm excited. <laughs> so we're going to read this scripture in the NIV. The NIV happens to be those Story of God Bibles that are in your pews, or you can look it up in a pew, in a excuse me, um, you know, a Bible app or something like that. Uh, this is going to be an alternate reading, which means that I, I will read the first verse, and we'll give you a chance to respond with the verse after that, and we'll go back and forth until the end. So again, it's Matthew chapter four, verses twelve through seven. And we ask that you rise as able, stand as able for the reading of God's word today. Matthew 4, 12 through 17. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. All right. You guys did really well with those uh, <laughs> the, the names of those places. So good job, everyone. Uh, we are continuing our, in our sermon series, Metanoia, Everything Changes. And today's message is called Light Up the Dark. We are going to be talking about darkness. Can't talk about light without darkness. And uh, friends, I, I am just wondering, what comes into your mind when you hear the word darkness? Maybe you hear the word like this, darkness. It's very foreboding. Darkness. Sounds like evil, right? Sounds bad. You know, but brothers and sisters, I want to argue for us to really understand what darkness is. Is that, I mean, you know, there is a place where maybe bad things can happen, but those are for secondary reasons. What darkness actually is. Well, I think a, a modern poet's philosopher uh, helped us to understand what darkness is. And this modern poet philosopher is someone named Lego Batman. And Lego Batman uh, it wrote a song that uh, talks about darkness. And just to kind of set this up for you, um, this appears in the Lego movie, where uh, everyone in this Lego land has to listen to one song incessantly on end. It's called Everything is Awesome. For those of you who were at the lock-in on Saturday, you might know that my go-to song to wake people up who can't wake up at lock-ins and retreats is to blare the song Everything is Awesome. And I do that because it is a very cheerful song. It is annoyingly cheerful. Everything is awesome. Everything is good. Everything is awesome. Oh, yeah. Like some people are like, Pastor Steve, make it stop. Make it stop. Like, get up. Get up. <laughs> and so this, you know, realist Lego Batman says, no. No, no, we're not going to sing Everything is Awesome. Let me tell you about darkness. And so we're going to hear a clip from this song. And so, yeah, let's, let's hear it right now. Yes, this is real music. Dark, brooding, important, groundbreaking. Check out the lyrics.
right, so maybe some of you guys couldn't hear some of these words. So these are just selected lyrics from that masterpiece. Darkness, the opposite of lights, black hole, curtains drawn in the basement. So it kind of starts off with darkness as this kind of like negative thing, right? Darkness, no parents. But then, you know, he just kind of drifts on this in this stream of consciousness where he just starts defining darkness. Just talking about things that are literally dark. The opposite of light, black hole, curtains drawn, right? Light can't get in. In the basement, middle of the night, blacked out windows, other places that are dark, black suit, black coffee, you get it. That's just the first verse. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, what is darkness? It is the absence of light. That's it, right? I know we have all kinds of negative associations with darkness, But for us to really get anything out of this message and to understand what it means when it says Jesus is the light of the world, I think it is most helpful to drop some of those negative associations, right? Because when I say you're in the dark, that if you have negative associations, that your mind is going to fight that and be like, well, I'm not in the dark. But brothers and sisters, what I'm going to try to argue is a lot of us are. And darkness is simply a place where you cannot see reality as it is, right? In the dark, you can't see really well because there's no light, right? And so the Bible talks about Jesus being the light of the world. This is kind of a mission statement. And so we just read this. And before we get to the part about light in the darkness, it tells us that this is how Jesus begins his public ministry. He leaves his hometown of Nazareth and he goes into this region called Galilee. And in the scripture, it tells us it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee in Hebrew means circle. And so it's saying it's the circle of the Gentiles. Because in this area of Galilee, it is surrounded by lands inhabited by Gentiles. It is a place that is exposed to all of the ideas and thoughts of the outside world. And this is where Jesus begins his public ministry. And so let's take a look at this. It says, um, and this is through the words of the prophet of Isaiah, but it's kind of a mission statement, right? The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So it's this idea that Jesus has come to bring light. He is the light of the world, right? And there is this association with darkness and the shadow of death. What does that mean? What is a shadow of death? It doesn't say death itself. It says a shadow. And what you may know about shadows is shadows are not always real. When you're kind of in a dark place, you know, or maybe you see like shadows in an alley, you're like, oh my gosh, what is that? What is that? Is that a robber? Is that a killer? Or is it just a cat? Right? It's hard to tell when you see a shadow. That's the way shadows work. They trick you. Right? And a lot of us live in a reality where you are afraid, where you are scared. We have been talking about this, juxtaposing two things. And again, it doesn't here. If this hasn't been clear, when we talk about the kingdom of the heavens, we are talking about a different kind of reality. We are not talking about just where you go after you die. We're talking about the realm, the reality where God is in control of everything. This is what Jesus came to bring. And this is juxtaposed. This is a kingdom of light. Right? That is juxtaposed with a place where it is dark. You cannot see reality as it is. Right? And so Jesus has come. And his central message, right after this mission statement about being the light uh, on a region that is dwelling in the shadow of death. We're afraid. We're anxious. We're stressed. Jesus has come to bring the new reality. And he says, repent. Which again, isn't this this sad weeping necessarily. It's not, I'm sorry and beating my breast. It simply means to change. To turn your allegiance. To not be part of this kingdom, this kingdom of darkness, this place where you can't see reality as it is, and to be into the new reality of the kingdom of heavens. A place where God is trying to invade all of known reality. Right? And so, for us to understand this, to understand that we are living in a place of the shadow of death, do you think that's true? 
When you hear that, what is your instinct? You know, you heard me say that. that, that that's kind of Jesus' mission statement. And maybe some of you are like, Pastor Steve, he's not talking about us. I'm not living in the shadow of death. Are you? Are we? Because remember what I said about the shadow of death. It isn't necessarily the reality of death. It's the fear of death. It is a place of anxiety and stress because that's the root of all anxiety and stress is the fear of death, isn't it? Right? It's on that continuum. It is the way we are designed. We are designed to avoid the possibility of death. It kept us alive for thousands of years. Guys, it was very, very helpful. Right? But this is the reality we're living in. And it's not a very fun reality. So by some estimates, um, Ronald Siegel talks about this. Uh, He says, did you know that by some estimates, over 80% of all visits to doctor's offices in the developed world are for for stress-related disorders? Right? 80%. Stress is killing us. Right? Right? So there's uh, all kinds of things. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to talk. There's going to be some science in this message. I hope you don't mind. And maybe for some of you, you know, you're raised like, oh, you know, we're Bible-believing Christians. Don't worry. If these things are true, they will not contradict the Bible, right? These things can coexist. Science and the Bible can coexist, right? They should kind of complement each other. And this is exactly what we see. So there is a stress hormone. It's called cortisol. And it is very helpful in some circumstances. Cortisol and adrenaline help keep you alive, right? Um, but it, cortisol in high doses can be very, very bad for your health. And so I just want to talk about some of the... Uh, so, so this is from uh, an article where they talk about the problems of continued exposure, exposure to cortisol. Again, it can be very helpful. It can help keep you alive in situations where you need heightened awareness. But think about it. If stress is the hormone or, or stress is the response that you have to the possibility of death, your body is trained to go into heightened awareness. Ha! Something might kill me, so I need to be ready, right? So you are awake, you're aware, you're analyzing uh, your, your surroundings for stress, right? But what does that mean? If you're awake and aware, you can't sleep. Some of us who are under stress all the time, you have trouble sleeping. Because your body is trying to be aware and awake and is trying to sense and look around for all kinds of dangers, even while you're lying in bed. Right, And so here are some of the other things. Impaired healing and cell regeneration. Disrupted digestion, mental function, and metabolism. Weakened ability to fight infection. In other words, it makes you sicker in many cases. Imbalances in other important hormones, uh, such as DHEA, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Loss of muscle and bone. Mood swings and depression. Hair and skin problems. Weight gain especially around the belly. You know, brothers and sisters, it affects so many things. And so maybe for some of us, we're thinking, well, you know, Pastor Steve, that's well and good, but, you know, maybe there's some people, you know, maybe this is just a problem I have. And brothers and sisters, maybe you're thinking, like, there's some people who are naturally stressed out, and there's some people who aren't. And so uh, Jack Kornfeld, he, he wrote about this, and he believed that there are some individuals who are not affected by stress. They're just naturally just very calm, relaxed people. They just take life as it is. And th- so this is what he wrote. He said, if you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. That's not many people, friends. By design. That's not the way we're designed. Right? So you are designed to scan your surroundings and try to analyze all the threats out there. You do it automatically. We are under stress all the time because it's kept us alive. 
So imagine our ancestors thousands of years ago. They're living in a far less civilized place, right? There aren't cities and walls to keep you uh, alive, right? You're in a dangerous world uh, of lions and animals that can maul you, right? And you see a rock, a brown tan rock in the distance. Okay, so that rock could be what? It could be a rock, (laughs) right? But it could also be a sleeping lion. Now, maybe 99 times out of 100, maybe 999 times out of 1,000, it's just a rock, right? But what about that one time when it's not a rock, right? If you're living in a dangerous world, that will keep you alive. If you look at that rock and you're like, oh my gosh, that could be a lion. It's not very likely, but it could, right? Um, That could keep you alive. But if you're like, well, chances are it's not a lion. So you walk right up to it, right? If you are wrong, um, or sorry, yeah, yeah. So if if you are, uh, if it really is a rock and you are paranoid about it, what do you lose? What is the loss? Nothing, really. I mean, you just got a little stressed for that moment. But look at the the difference, right? If you're right, (laughs) if it really is a lion, you get eaten, you die, right? So the cost-benefit of being wrong in that situation about whether or not it's a rock is, is it leans very heavily in the negative direction. So what are you trained to pay attention to? By design, you are trained to pay attention to the negative possibility. This is the way all of us work. Right? Have you ever um, gone through life, uh, you know, you've gone through a day, and maybe there's like 10 things you did right. You know, you had a checklist, and you did 10 things. But maybe there's one thing that you did wrong. One thing you messed up, one thing you forgot. When you're lying in bed, what, do you, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about the one thing that went wrong, aren't you? You're not thinking about the 10 things that went right. Maybe some of you have a job, and there's like an evaluation. Your boss is telling you all these wonderful things about you. Oh, you're a hard worker, and you come on time, and everyone likes you. But there's one area of improvement. What are you preoccupied with? What do you spend most of your mental energy on? The many wonderful, glowing things that your boss said about you, or the one area of improvement? It's one area of improvement, right? This is the way that we are by design. It's automatic, right? And for many of us, it's not just that, but we are programmed to look for negative, to try to minimize the negative, and then to try to seek pleasure, right? Uh, It is another very basic thing that kept you alive. Eating, especially good food, is very pleasurable. A lot of the things that keep you alive. A warm bed is pleasurable, right? Being out of the cold is pleasurable. All these things have helped keep us alive for thousands of years. But these are your default settings. And if you are not aware, you will automatically chase those things. You don't have to think about it. And so for many of us, friends, what we look at in these kinds of things, when we talk about these kinds of things, we see it as some kind of moral failure, right? We're like, well, me being in darkness, that means it's because I'm a bad person. You're no more bad than anyone else. This, brothers and sisters, is just the human condition. It's all of us, right? So if you're stressed or you're anxious or you're living in this world where you are not completely secure, You're not in the full reality of the kingdom of God. Well, brothers and sisters, that's your default setting. That is literally all of us. And so what happens is as you are going through life, we are trained to pay attention disproportionately to bad things, bad possibilities, and to try to minimize them, but also to seek good things. And we are trained to ignore neutral things. And by the way, like we said, there is way more emphasis on the negative things. Yeah, we like hearing the positive things, and those do uh, register, for sure. But the negative things register way more. Uh, There's these uh, marriage researchers, um, the Gottmans, John and Julie Gottman, and they, stu- 
study thousands of married couples and their interactions. And the Gottmans have gotten so good at looking at uh, uh, dynamics between couples that if you play them uh, about a 15 second soundbite, they can predict with over 80% uh, uh, with 80% um, accuracy whether or not that couple will be together in five years time. Is that crazy? 80% accuracy, just from like a 15 second clip. So they're really, really good at studying married couples. And what they found is that, of course, they studied a lot of fights, right? Is they found that uh, after a fight that, that a couple has, it takes about five positive interactions to counteract the effects of that negative fight, right? And brothers and sisters, it is for so many of us. Maybe you have a friend and, you know, it's like something happened and you lost respect for them, right? Like it only took one thing for you to lose respect for them, but it takes so many more things to gain back that respect, right? So many of the figures out there, you know, if I were to name some politician or something, probably the first thing that will come to mind, if there's any negative public things out there, you're going to think of the negative thing, right? More than all of their positive accomplishments. This is the way all of our minds are trained, right? And so we go through life and we are not completely in control. Now, this is the thing. If you are threatened, if you think there is a threat out there, these hormones and your body's responses will automatically take over. Right? Maybe someone will say to you, hey, you seem a little on edge. Why don't you just calm down and not be stressed? Does that help? Have you ever been able to just not be stressed? My dad told me this over the phone. He's like, oh, you know, Steve, you know, in our family, we have a lot of heart problems. And he's right. And he's like, stress is one of the leading causes of heart problems. So don't be stressed. I'm like, thanks, dad, for that stellar <laughs> advice. I mean, you know, he means well. But how well, I mean, how well are you able to regulate your stress just by being like, don't be stressed? It is not a matter of willpower. These things happen automatically. I can't stress this enough. This is so important for you to understand, right? And so when we go through life, oftentimes you will gravitate to things that, that are, are preoccupy you negatively. So when you aren't thinking about anything, where does your mind drift to? To mistakes, to things you did wrong. To things looming on the horizon that could possibly be future mistakes. You can't help but think those things. Yes, you know, if maybe some of those things are absent, you're going to be thinking about all the cool things that you could be doing, that you want to look forward to. And so many of us are not here. We're in the past thinking about mistakes, or we're in the future thinking about possible pleasures or possible pains. Right? And this moment is passing you by. We're an autopilot so much of the time, especially when you're under stress. Last week, I was kind of rushing off to church. Um, I kind of lost track of time, and I looked at the clock, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, church is going to start soon. i got to go. And so in my hurry and in my stress, I realized that I did something just kind of mindlessly. I just put on my shoes, and I got to church, and... Uh, actually, I did this totally wrong. But <laughs> what I was going to do was going to ask you, do you notice anything about me that's different? And I was actually going to make the prize a, a mug. This is a first-gen Living Grace Ministry mug. I know, I know. It, it is a collector's item, friends. Does anyone notice anything different about me this morning? Huh? My shoes are different. <laughs> Congratulations, yeah. <laughs> so... Brothers and sisters, last Sunday, I came to church, and I was sitting here in worship, and you know, we're singing like, God, you're awesome, and all this stuff, and I looked down, and what I didn't realize is the whole time I'm going like this, I'm swaying back and forth. Yes, maybe it was the Holy Spirit, but it's also, these shoes are different levels, so when I'm just standing still, I just start tottering, right? And so I was like, why am I tottering, right? I literally put on different shoes, and so I did it again this morning on purpose to prove a point, but... Brothers and sisters, we just, we don't pay attention. You know, there's so many times that these things happen to you. 
You know, how many of you, when you're kind of preoccupied, you're thinking about something, like in the shower? It's just an ordinary thing. Remember what we said. You are programmed by design to pay attention to things that are negative and things that could possibly be pleasurable way more than neutral things, right? So it goes negative way more than positive and neutral. You just tune out. Have you ever been in the shower and you're thinking about something and then you're like... Wait, did I use shampoo yet? Right? Like, like, you don't even remember. So I see some people nodding their heads, right? I think there's probably sometimes when I'm really distracted, I probably use shampoo like three times. You know? So many times I leave the house and I'm like, did I, did I close the garage door? And I have to do that thing where you loop back. Has anyone ever done that? For those of you guys who drive? Yeah. How many times are we just on autopilot? Maybe some of you, you're driving somewhere and you're supposed to go someplace that maybe you don't go to all the time and you end up driving in the direction of work or driving in a place where you normally go all the time. The autopilot just takes over. You are not conscious, right? And this is most of us, most of the time. We are literally living in darkness. We are living in a cloud and we are not here. Now, this has lots of implications, like I said, for your health. It has lots of implication for life, period. You know, because what we find is there is so much life that you are missing out on. So many cool things that if we started paying attention, we could see them. You know, but also I want to argue, you're also going to miss God. Now, this might seem kind of like a weird thought to you. But brothers and sisters, what is the name of God? Does anyone know? You might have heard me preach on this before. Does anyone know what the holy name of God is? It's not God, okay? God is a title. It's just a generic term that we use. Yes, for most of us in the West, we think of it as God's name, but it is not. In the Bible, whenever you see uh, Lord in all capitals, that does not say Lord. That says the actual name of God. That God gave. Do you guys remember? This is in Exodus when God met Moses in the burning bush and Moses is kind of nervous and anxious and stressed because he's like, hey, I'm going to send you to the people and, and I'm going to free you from slavery. So you go up and you tell your people that God's going to free them. And he's like really nervous about that. It's like, well, what if they ask what your name is, God? <laughs> what should I tell them? And so God gives his name. What is it? Huh? Yes, Yahweh. Actually, we think it's pronounced Yahweh. We're not sure. The reason why it is Lord in your Bibles is because uh, for the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, that name was so holy that they would not pronounce it. They would see that, that name that we think is pronounced Yahweh, and they would just say Lord. That's why it says Lord in your Bibles. Right, And they would say Adonai or Elohim or one of those uh, equivalent words for Lord. Right, And by the way, uh, so because of that, we're not quite sure how it's pronounced. But because in Hebrew, uh, in the Bible, it's all consonants. There's no vowels. The vowels you have to infer by context. So we see the equivalent of the English uh, consonants, Y-H-W-H. Or um, as it gets played around with, with uh, Latin, because there's no Y, uh, there's, there's really no J. So Y sometimes becomes J. J-H-W-H, or Y-H-W-H. That's, by the way, where they got Yehovah, or Jehovah. Because they put the, cons- the, the vowels for Adonai or Elohim, and it made Yahweh. Right? And they just started saying Jehovah. I'm sorry, it's probably not, not pronounced Jehovah for the people who are very big on that, right? Um, but the, the point is that that name means something. It's not just a name, but it means something. And in your Bibles, it tells you exactly what it means. And if you go to Exodus 3, that phrase will be all capitalized too, because that is God's name. What is it? What does it mean? Anyone? I'll give you a hint. It starts with I and ends with am. (laughs) Anyone want to try? (laughs) I am who I am, or I am that I am. Have you ever thought about what that means? That's such a weird name for God, isn't it? 
right? Like, if I had to choose a name for God, I, I honestly feel like sometimes I could do better than that. Like, I could be like, you know, I am love, right? Wouldn't that be a, such a cool name? I am supreme power, you know? But his name is just, I am who I am. It, his name is, I exist. And I've always existed. I, I, I just am. God is. That's what God's name is, right? Have you ever thought about that? I've read people who've talked about this, and they're like, the reason why this name is better than any other name is because it is the one thing we can say about God for sure. This is the one thing that we absolutely know about God and He revealed about Himself. That He is. He eternally is. He's the eternal I am. I'm here. I'm God. I'm real. Now. That's what you know about God. Everything else is an approximation. You could say God is love. But do you know how loving God is? No. There's no way your mind could grasp that. You could say God is powerful, but you have no idea how powerful he is. Your mind cannot comprehend this. So when we try to know God, and we're like, God, show me your glory. In the, in the Old Testament, that would have been suicide. You do not ask God to show himself to you, because you will die. You will burn up. God is too big. God is too holy. God is too powerful. And so, when God revealed himself to Moses, he's like, Moses, turn away. I'm just going to show you a little part of my backside, right? Because if you looked upon my face, you would surely die. And so many of us, we've lost that. We've lost that reverence and respect for God. What can you know about God? Well, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, some of it is a mystery. God will reveal things to you. God can be with you, but this is the thing. If God's name and his identity that we can know for sure is that God is, God is present, then I'm going to say something that hopefully will make sense to you. The only way you can encounter the presence of God, the real presence of God, is in the present. In other words, if you are not present, then you cannot encounter the presence of God. Does that make sense? Does that sound radical for some of you? Some of you are fighting that like, uh, but Pastor Steve, you know, isn't God like in the past and future too? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> he is. But who's past and future? The real past and future? Or your past and future. Because by the way, your past and future are different than everyone else's. Did you know that? Right? Have you ever had a conversation with someone about a past event that you both attended? And you have a bitter disagreement about what actually happened. Right? You remember it differently. Your past is not real, friends. It is your perception of what happened. It is what you remembered. And by the way, you don't remember all the details of it. You remember the things that stood out to you. And what stood out to you is different than what stood out to other people. And maybe someone said something to you and they actually didn't mean you're a stupid moron, but you heard it as you're a stupid moron, right? You perceived it as you're a stupid moron. And in your past, someone called you a stupid moron. But what that person remembers is that, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I said hi to you or something and I was really distracted that day. I'm sorry. I think I kind of blew you off a little bit. I'm sorry about that. Right? And you're like, no, no, you don't get to get away with that. You called me a stupid moron. Did they? Is that real? Or is that what your mind that is programmed to focus on negative things and make narratives and stories that make sense? Is that what it cooked up? So brothers and sisters, let me tell you, when you are in the past that is not real, God is real. He is eternally real. He's not there in that story. Does that make sense? Now, what about the future? The great what-if game that we all play. Well, what if this happens, right? What, what if that happens? And you can play the what-if game uh, for eternity. It, it is insanity. It drives people insane, right? Again, this is by design, that you are designed to think about the possibilities of negative things because that kept you alive for thousands of years. But it will also keep you awake at night. That is the old way, right? It was by design, and it served a purpose back then. But now we have what God is trying to bring, a new kind of kingdom and reality. 
You don't need that anymore. Right? And so for a lot of us, we imagine all these things. And so some people are so scared and afraid, and they're paralyzed by all the different possibilities that they won't go into any uncertain situation. They're like, yeah, but a killer could jump out of that alleyway. I'm not walking by that alleyway, right? That rock could be a lion. Well, it's a very low chance, right? But that is the way that our brains are wired, right? What if a jet engine falls out of the sky and falls? Brothers and sisters, is that going to happen? Well, the correct answer is, I don't know. (laughs) But there's a very, very low chance that's going to happen. Could it happen? Sure. An infinite number of things could happen. Your imagined future is not real. Does that make sense? Am I going too far? Is it fair to say your imagined future is not real? You probably, well, we tend to forget these things and move on to the next anxiety. But there were probably times in your life, in this past week, where you imagined a future that was disastrous that did not come to pass. Right? There's something that you thought was going to be so bad, and it came and went, and it wasn't as bad. It wasn't real. But we spend so much time in the not real. Where is the one place where you can encounter God? In the is, in the now, because God is the great I am. Here, I want to show you this passage where it talks about darkness. Uh, And so this is what came to mind when I heard darkness. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, the highest of highs, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So in other words, this is what we're telling you about the kingdom of God. This is the reality we're trying to live in. God is everywhere. And He wants to reign everywhere. There is no place in your life where God is not. When we live in this imagined reality, it is an imagined reality, that you are alone. That, oh my gosh, I could be in a place where I'm going to get mauled by a bear. Right? You know, I'm not safe. That's what our brains tell us. That's what they're designed to tell us. But that is not the reality. I'm alone. I'm alone. That's so scary. You are not alone. That's not the reality. God is here. He is always here. The problem is, is that you cannot sense Him. You cannot be with Him. And so the psalmist is going to reveal this. This is so cool, friends. I want to show you this. Okay, so it says, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. God can see through your illusions. Sorry if I'm shouting, but I'm so excited. This is great. God can see through all that. He knows it's not real. And He wants to reveal it to you. So let's go back to the beginning of this psalm. In the beginning, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Don't think your thoughts are hidden from God. Some of you are ashamed of your thoughts. Why? I mean, He made you. Right? And I already told you, it was by design. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. Your anxiety, your stress, it doesn't surprise God. We think of it as some moral failure. That's just human being a human being. He's already discerned your thoughts. He already knows you're freaking out about that. And God still loves you. You didn't lose respect in the eyes of God. He knew that about you. But He wants better for you as well. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And this is the really cool verse that most of us gloss over. It's probably the verse in all of Psalm 139 that we understand the least. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand behind me. Lay your hand upon me. So what is to hem in? It means to sew someone in place where they can't move. If someone hems you in, right? It would mean like Mark is trying to come forward and I hem him in. Hem him in, right? Before him. What does that mean? Mark can't go forward. If you hem him in behind him, what does that mean? Mark can't go backwards. It doesn't say you hem me in all around. It says before and behind, right? And lay your hands upon me. God is everywhere and he wants you to be with him. So what does he do? He says, stop trying to go into the future. Stop going into the past. Be here now. I'm going to put my hand on you. 
So you can't move from this moment. Be in this moment. That's what God wants for you. That is God's will for you. This is how we learn to be in the reality of God's kingdom. Because the problem for many of us is we are living in unreality. And if you could know the presence of God, the presence of God that is so good, so loving, and so powerful that you don't need to worry about anything. If you could sense and know that presence, you would not need to be afraid of anything. And so that is why we said one of the marks of living in the kingdom of the heavens is being in a place where you are not anxious. When you are anxious, it means you're chasing shadows, friends. Those shadows are plaguing you. You are in a place of unreality, right? But when we know the truth that there is an eternal God who loves you, and right here in this moment now is a great and holy moment that you do not need to be afraid of. Isn't that cool? But this is the thing. Your nervous system doesn't believe me. Your nervous system is trained to fear and be anxious. And by the way, we live in a world that plays off of this and uses it to their advantage. Have you ever seen a political advertisement? I'm sure you have, right? Political advertisements are usually what? Positive or negative? Negative. Why? We already told you. They know what I just told you. And they're using it against you. They know that you are going to remember negative things about someone's opponent more than you're going to remember positive things. So you see like, you know, I so-and-so, I approve this message, right? I'm running for governor and I approve this message. They don't say anything about that candidate. They just say bad things about the opponent. Because they know that's what's going to stick. Right? This world is always telling you you're not enough. They're always telling you what you should be afraid of. Have you seen those home security commercials? Right? And the home security commercial is usually not somebody in a house and they're just chilling and relaxing. They're like, hey, I, I feel safe. They do show that, but more often, what do they show? Someone breaking into your house. They show that person, they play the suspenseful music and there's glass everywhere. And that person's like, oh, I feel so exposed. Oh my gosh. And they're like, yeah, I want you to feel that way so you will buy our security system, right? This is the way advertisements are designed. This is the way our world is designed. They play off of this. They want you to feel anxious because they make money off of it. We live in a world where everyone is like, I cannot sit still because if I do, well, a couple of things will happen. One thing is maybe I won't get those things that are positive. And maybe I won't be able to avoid all of the negative things. The poverty and and the shame that comes from not succeeding in this life. We fear that and so we run. And also, brothers and sisters, when we are still, our fears catch up to us. Our thoughts catch up to us. And our thoughts go crazy. They drive us crazy. Some of you who are in your heads a lot. You you are plagued by these negative thoughts and anxieties. Maybe you're like me, because I'm I'm one of those people who spends so much time worrying and stressing and perseverating, and I can't help it, by the way. I wish I could. I wish I could just be like, don't be stressed. It doesn't work that way. All of these things play out in my imagination again and again and again. And my thoughts, I'm like, oh my gosh, stop, brain. Just stop, right? Now, friends, remember what we said about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God is king. God is in control. When something is in control, you can't stop it. So who's in control of you? It's probably your thoughts. God is not king over you. Your thoughts are. Your negative thoughts. Your anxious thoughts. That is your king. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm just telling you that's the reality that most of us live in most of the time. So this is for me. When I want to turn off those thoughts, what do I do? I watch like a mindless action movie. And I've talked to so many people who are the same way as me. They're like, you know what? I just love those movies like Transformers where there's these explosions. It's stupid, you know? And, you know, I just love like brainless pop music, you know? Uh, I was like really into Kesha for a while. I went through a Kesha phase. Because it's just so brainless and stupid. Like the lyrics mean nothing. TikTok, TikTok. Like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means, you know? But it's just brainless and it's just a beat, you know? And I could just turn off my brain for five seconds 
Some of you know I had a drinking problem. Same thing. I would drink so I could turn off my brain. That was what I was looking for, to stop those thoughts. Right? And so, brothers and sisters, we must realize first the reality. You are in darkness. And if you can realize that, then there is the possibility of awakening. Jesus came to say, the kingdom of God is here, right here, at hand. It is breaking into this world. God is all around you. The eternal I am is right here. And he wants to rule in your life. So how do we do that, friends? What can we actually do for the reality of the kingdom of God to break in? Well, I want to tell you something very practical. It's very simple. But it's very pedestrian, ordinary. So ordinary that many of you will hear this and be like, that can't be it. Do you still want to hear it? (laughs) Because this has changed my life. It really has. But it's so ordinary that most of you will hear this and be like, no, there's got to be something more. It's this. Remember, I told you, God is everywhere. So what do you need to pay attention to? To God. But God is invisible. You knew that. God is invisible. You can't see him. But if you start paying attention to this moment, right now, the stuff around you, this podium, my shoes, (laughs) you start paying attention to the breath in your lungs, you start paying attention to your emotions, you start paying attention to ordinary things, and you will find that God will start breaking through in your life in ways that you don't expect. I want to try to convince you that this is true. What are the greatest moments in your life? Moments where you felt the presence of God, and maybe some of you are like, well, Pastor Steve, I'm just not that religious. I mean, you talked about these God experiences. I don't know what you mean. I mean a transcendent experience. An experience where you didn't feel so alone in this universe. An experience where you felt like there is something spiritual beyond just the physical. Was it a moment maybe for the parents? You're just looking at your little baby. And you notice things about your baby. You see the hairs on their head. There's not many. There's just a few. And there's like sweat just, and you can see the sweat on me, so you can imagine this. Right? There's just sweat, just cementing, just a hair on that little baby's, uh, onto that little baby's head. You're like, oh, Pastor Steve, I can't look at you the same way. <laughs> you know, maybe there's a moment. You're looking at a sunset. You know, we went to Mexico in Tijuana, and the thing that we look forward to so much at night, we we only spent a few nights there, but the sunsets, oh my gosh, there's a beach there, and we would watch the sun like this, you know, pinkish, yellow, orangish gumdrop just melt into the ocean, and it was beautiful, and we were just watching it. Maybe there's a moment like that for you. Maybe there's a moment where you're just looking at a tree or watching a bird fly by or something and just the world just kind of, it just made more sense. You felt more secure. Just, you, you weren't worried about stuff. Brothers and sisters, isn't it in all of those moments they have something in common? They have something in common, don't they? You weren't thinking. You were just present. You weren't thinking about all the stuff that could go wrong. You weren't thinking about your chemistry final. Right? You weren't thinking about how, oh my gosh, I hope I don't die alone. Right? In that moment, you were just watching the sun melt into the sea. And this is something I said. It maybe came out slightly condescending. I'm sorry, mission team, if it did. Right? We watched it fall into the ocean, and, and you could almost hear an audible, like, oh, like, oh man, it's over. And so this is why I said, again, maybe came out slightly condescending. I was like, guys, this literally happens every day. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? It happens here too. Did you know that? (laughs) You did, right? But we're not paying attention. We're just rushing around, right? This is part of my spiritual practice. I spend uh, some time in the park just noticing things, being still with God. It reorients and recalibrates me. It's living in a different reality. The reality of the now that is real. The reality where God actually is. Changes your life. Changes your heart. Changes your nervous system. Right? I mean, they've done all kinds of studies. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you by experience. 
Do you know that little flutter you feel in, in your heart? I talked about this a couple weeks ago. The, ha, 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 the anxiety, right? Because why, why is that happening? Because your brain is trained to look for danger. And even if there's no danger around, your brain is just, it's so amped up on all those things where it's like there must be something wrong. This is why last week I talked about this. Why after the school year ends, you're still nervous and anxious. Because your mind is like, there must be something wrong. Let's find it. Right? And when you start to stop to be present to the reality of God, automatically that starts to change. That uh, uh, I have been plagued by anxiety for most of my adult life. It's been bad. Crippling, in fact. You know, I come to church and, you know, I'm just thinking about the sermon and... I have to apologize. I mean, you know, a few years back, and it maybe last year, I don't know. But I would like shake people's hands, and I'm not present. I'm like not looking you in the eye. I'm like, hey, hey, good to see you. Good to see you. You know, I can't be present. I mean, it's something, part of my spiritual practice, look you in the eye and just actually enjoy you, you know? Have you ever met someone who's just so absolutely present? And maybe you didn't verbalize this, but thinking back on it, you're like, oh my gosh, that person just, it wasn't like they were in a rush or had to get to the next moment, or they were just worried and preoccupied all this stuff. They were just here with me. There's a word for that. It's called love. Right? When you're in love with someone, so often, I mean, you're just like gazing at that person. Every little thing they say, you hang on every word. You just want to be with them. Can we fall in love with God in every moment you have? I told you, I go to the park. It's easier to do at the park. Let me tell you, it's way easier to do in the park because you have all these beautiful things. There's like like lakes and, you know, birds are flying and so glorious. But I got to tell you, it's Michigan. Weather's bad. You can't go to the park every day. Or if you do, you're going to get hypothermia. You know? So sometimes weather's really bad. I just have to do it in a coffee shop. This past week, I was at a coffee shop. Spent 30 minutes alone with God, just being still. Not a lot of words were exchanged. Yeah, I read some scripture, but it wasn't a lot of thinking. It's just being still. Just being still. God, just recalibrate me. God, I just want to know that you are here. That's my prayer. It's a silent prayer most of the time. And you know what I was doing most of the time? I was just watching my coffee, and I was transfixed. I just watched the little wisps of steam. Just, it was like magical. I, I know some of you are like, oh, Pastor Steve, this is so childlike. Remember, You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a little child. These children who are so enchanted by the world. Dad, come over here. There's a leaf. You're like, oh, big deal, kid. (laughs) Like, yeah, look at that leaf. Become a little child again. Have you ever noticed like older people? They seem so infantile to us. They just enjoy the world. I remember I went to this fireworks celebration. And to me, I was like, man, this is loud. Like I had to go sit in the security line. And I was sitting behind these older people. And they were just watching the fireworks celebration. They kept saying, wow. How many times have you actually said the word wow out loud? Right? Like, like after the age of 10. You know, we don't say wow. You know, except sarcastically. But they weren't being sarcastic. They're like, wow. I'm like, man, these older people. They're like little kids. It's something Richard Rohr calls the second naivete. This idea where the world has wonder for you again, if you would just pay attention to it. And so, brothers and sisters, we will talk more in the coming weeks of how we can enter into this new reality. But I just want to say this. I want to end with uh, just a couple thoughts and quotes. So this idea um, that uh, Michael Elliston said once, if you can sit and do nothing, then you can do virtually anything. It takes practice, though. Right? Because most of us, we feel that anxiety, and the anxiety says, move, do something, run, hide, fight, or flight. That's the way you're programmed. And the way you calm that down is by sitting still. It will settle on its own. God will help settle that in a way that you cannot even understand. It will just settle. But I want to warn you, when you try to be still, because some of you, you've heard these sermons, this isn't the first time I talked about being still, you tried it, and you hated it. So did I. (laughs) Right? Someone once told me, that it's like a bottle of water. And a bottle of water is rolling. And so the water is sloshing around. And when that bottle of water hits like a, a street curb or something like that, and it stops, what happens to the water? Does it go still all at once? No. It's a violent collision. And actually what happens in that bottle of water is it is more violent. It is more turbulent. 
And that is what's going to happen to you because you have become used to your anxiety. You have become used to your stress. You become used to moving and it's a survival tactic. So when you sit still in some weird way that is totally not rational, you're going to feel like you're going to die. <laughs> like a little bit, right? Like maybe like not a big death, but a little death. Your, your, your body's going to be like, what are you doing? We're a sitting duck, right? The things that are out there to get us, they're going to get us. You will become more anxious. How many people have tried being still and you've experienced this? Right? Okay, maybe you haven't tried being still. I highly recommend it. It's good for you. But for many of us, when you try being still, you're like, I, I didn't like it. I got more anxious. Yeah, but it will settle. It'll get better. Richard Rohr said this, and, and so I want to close on this thought, and I want you to think about this. If you can accept anything 100%, it is enough to convert you. Anything. He's like a rock, you know, this chair, you know. If you can accept it 100%. So it is to be present, but it is also to be present with acceptance. And that is very important. Because when we're in this moment, and we're thinking about all the threats, and all the things we could do or should do, past and future, and we're a moving target, we're not accepting it. And this is something a lot of Christians, especially, I mean, I'm just going to call it like I see it, Maybe you grew up in the church. You're like a good Christian kid. And a lot of your anxiety problems is you are fighting yourself. In this moment, you can't be still. Because you're thinking about all the mistakes you made. Or all the things you haven't done. This is, by the way, why so many of you procrastinate. (laughs) What does procrastinate mean? To put off till tomorrow. Right? I can't deal with the now. That's what it literally means. When you're procrastinating, just tell yourself, I can't deal with the now. At least be honest. Right? I can't sit still with the now. So I'm going to do something else to distract myself. I didn't seek out to solve procrastination. I've been a chronic procrastinator. I've always told myself, because you don't have discipline. So I thought, like, seriously, for a season of joining the Marines. Not because I think the Marines would be cool, just because I wanted discipline, right? And what I found is that as I've learned to be still with God, I procrastinate far less. Why? Because I'm not afraid of the present moment. I don't have that, I'm not fighting it all the time. And when you sit down, some of the thoughts are going to say something like this. Like, "Ah, I can't believe you procrastinated this long. And so your solution is so, it doesn't make sense. It's let's procrastinate more. (laughs) It's true, because we can't be still with this moment. What if you were to accept that? Oh yeah, I did procrastinate, totally. I totally did. You sit with that emotion. It's going to suck for a little bit. But God profoundly loves you in this moment. Right? And you got to practice. In that moment, I can feel all these things and accept it. And say, I'm still loved by God. This is the only moment that's real. If I put it off tomorrow, what usually happens? Tomorrow, do you feel like doing it? No. So you put it off again. And then you put it off again. And then you put it off again. And then you put it off again. And either I'm going to go to jail or I'm going to get fired, so I'll do it. Right? A greater fear takes over. That's why you do it. You do it out of fear. Not because you ever learn how to face the moment. Right? And so, brothers and sisters, let's just do that. <laughs> let's practice. It just makes sense. Let's take a moment to be absolutely present in this moment. Okay? It's not going to feel great. And and I'm not promising you all of a sudden the angels are going to part the heavens and you're going to hear the voice of God. It's not like that. It's going to take some time for you to understand this new reality. But let's just take a moment to be still. And by the way, accepting reality, accepting the present is when you're not able to accept the present well. (laughs) When you're not present, that's part of the game. You're like, man, I stink at this. I don't like this, right? I'm a failure. Just accept that, right? Of course you're not good at it. You haven't had practice, right? You live in a world where we are all, by design, programmed to not be present. So of course you're not present. Of course you're not good at it. It's okay. Just accept that. You can just say that. The next moment you catch yourself, your mind is wandering. Brothers and sisters, I just want you right now. Be here. Be here. So take a deep breath. Just in through your nose. Out through your mouth. God is here. And just in this moment... You can pray for it and ask for it. God, I want a heart of utter acceptance and surrender to this moment. Whatever happens, just accept it. 
If nothing happens, accept that. If you start feeling bored, accept that. If you start feeling sleepy, we'll straighten up. Because <laughs> this is the realest moment you can ever have. If you do fall asleep for a moment and you wake up the next moment, just accept that. Just accept it. It's okay. It's profoundly okay. In the kingdom of God, it is profoundly okay. You are safe. You are profoundly loved and accepted. So accept yourself. Accept your faults. Accept reality. For many of us, we can't accept even good moments. We're always trying to improve it. Just be here now. So let's just take a moment to just be still. You can take deep breaths. You can notice something. You can look at the sweat pouring down my face. <laughs> you can look at the Bible in front of you in your pew. Uh, you don't necessarily need to read it. Just look at it. <laughs> just be here now. Just for a moment.